Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, it's Thursday night, 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, and welcome to another episode of Be Unique's Unscripted, where we talk to artists, musicians, performers, and business professionals. My name is Tony Taylor, I'll be your host for this evening. You know, you could spend your Thursday nights anywhere, and we are excited you're spending it with us. The conversation is cool, it's calm, and it's casual. You can also be a part of the conversation by dialing 516-418-5651. Now, before we begin, let's talk about why you need to get on your phone and go to BeUnique.org. That's B-U-N-E-K-E.org. Here's what Be Unique is all about. Our mission is to work today to change tomorrow using digital mediums to connect the world with professional storytelling and media production. We work to educate, inspire, and foster positivity and creativity worldwide through video, audio, and a spectacular literary magazine featuring writers from around the world. The newest Be Unique magazine is out right now, and you can read it online along with Be Unique Brevard magazine, the Space Coast premiere magazine. Be Unique is also a media powerhouse. Not only do you get this incredible podcast hosted by me, Tony Taylor, but 11 other shows. So sit back Get comfortable and get ready to dial 516-418-5651 with your questions, comments, and whatever else you may want to say. Let's meet our guest. All right. Good evening, everybody. It is Thursday night. It is 9 o'clock. It is 9 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, and you are listening to Be Unique Radio and Be Unique's Unscripted. My name is Tony Taylor. I'll be hosting tonight. Tonight, we ha- I am honored and I'm privileged to have Professor Amy J. Keeley on. She is an award-winning marketer, CEO, and professor whose information-packed workshops, seminars, and masterclasses have provided and helped entrepreneurs and business professionals expand their identify areas of growth. She holds a Bachelor of Arts degree in English from the University of Michigan, a Master in Business Administration, and a Master of Education. And she attended an international study program at Cambridge University in the United Kingdom. Amy's mother was also the first female engineer at General Motors. Her father was a successful entrepreneur. Amy ran concession stands starting at eight years old, and she shares her 20-plus years of business experience and educational experiences by teaching college courses and participating in business workshops in the following disciplines, management, business law, marketing, human resources, English, communications, photography, and in a fashion merchandising program. She is also able to inspire and motivate people personally and professionally by helping them see their value. Amy's master classes are full of case studies and activities to help people learn by doing, not learn in theory only. It is her students that stay in touch that give her the confidence that she's making a difference. Professor Keeley, welcome to the show. I hope I got everything right. <laughs> you did. Thank you, Tony. It sounds much worse when people say it out loud. Uh, okay, great. Well, I want to welcome you to the show, and uh, I also want to just let you know that you're one of our first uh, guests uh, to discuss the economy and and, and global uh, news that we're talking about tonight. Uh, with so many subjects that you are a master of and so many uh, uh, different talents that you have, I wanted to focus on one thing in particular, and that is the great resignation. And can we start off right off the bat by describing or defining what exactly is the Great Resignation? I think that's a great question. Um, I think the Great Resignation um, is what corporate has coined this term because they are struggling to keep people working for them. And so they're seeing a higher turnover in their workforce. And and in replacing those workers has become a great challenge for them. And they are still struggling to understand why people are resigning from working in the workforce. And I think that in some cases they are on the right track for why certain people are doing it. But I think that they've missed, um, in a way, some of the massive changes and how it impacts them, in particular how people are – being trained in, in the educational system and then what they're doing when they come out of school. 
Right. And as an interdisciplinarian, um, with you know workforce management study for you know, 20 years as such, you've uh, narrowed it down to, I guess, six factors. Um, and let's talk about the first factor, which you say is voluntary mandatory overtime. <laughs> yes. The first time I heard that term was with my mother when she worked at General Motors. Um, right. And probably in the 1980s, she came home and said that you know, she, she was going to have to do voluntary mandatory overtime, which was when voluntary General Motors mandatory. and other large <laughs> – yeah, which is, okay, so 40 hours a week plus 10, right. and we're not going to pay you for the 10. Right. Um, so I never saw my mom. She was always gone. And, wow. you know, it was one of those things as I started to think about um, about kind of that voluntary mandatory overtime and what it meant – is I started to think about the fact that what companies needed is workers to work longer hours with the same pay as 40 hours a week. And right. I even caught myself doing that where I'm paid 40 hours a week, but I'm putting in 90 to 100 hours a week. Sure. And that becomes a challenge, right? Unless you're really efficient at your job, it's a struggle to keep up yes. with that workload or the expectation that employers have of you. And in part because they're now competing in this global marketplace. And there's always the discussion of whether, you know, corporate greed and, and that's out there. And, and I struggle with that because I'm an independent voter and thinker. So what happens is that I can see both sides. So I can see, yes, CEOs in some cases make too much money, and yet they also are legally responsible for their companies. So they take on the burden legally. If they don't run the company correctly, there's huge ramifications. And they're also losing time with their family because they're sure. always working too. And people, I think, sometimes glamorize what the CEO does. where I tend to focus is that, so according to the Small Business Administration, there are 33 million businesses um, in the United States in particular. Um, there are, of those, 19,561 of those are actually large corporations. Wow. The rest of the 33 million are actually small businesses, and about 70% are one owner, so consultants, um, people that are running their own little small mom-and-pop shops, but the rest of them are sort of mid-sized companies because the Small Business Administration also kind of adds to the ambiguity because they'll say, well, we define a small business as 500 employees. Well, to me, that's a mid-sized company. So what happens, on, especially on those mid-sized companies, is where in order to get to that billion-dollar mark of what they want to do, they have to work harder, and so do their employees. Sure. And that's where a lot of that voluntary mandatory overtime comes in. And I started thinking about it because when I was, I was doing sales, I would, when a customer was late to a webinar or to a conference call or to a meeting, I'd always say, oh, don't worry about it. We're all doing the job of about 15 people. And I thought about it. I'm like, wait a minute. We are doing the job yeah. of 15 people. Right. Because if you think back to like, let's say, a, 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 what used to be a secretary. My mom was a secretary. It was get coffee, take dictation, plan schedules, maybe do a little bit of the events that they're doing. And that's predominantly what their role was. Now admin, they're admin assistants, and they're right. doing scheduling, they're doing marketing, they're doing finances, you know, uh, doing expense reports, right. um, even writing checks in some occasions, um, being security chiefs, I've heard, where they're actually mm -hmm. having to do security checks on people. Um, so they're doing a lot more HR. So that role I started thinking about, I'm like, wow, they are doing the job of 15 yes. people. Yes. And so you have the voluntary mandatory overtime of now I'm working more hours, less time with my family, and I'm having to do more. I'm now discontented, and I don't know why. And that's where I think that, that mandatory voluntary overtime really um, burned people out. Good, yes. Um, I can relate. Uh, in my former job, um, there were two people running in my department. And the one person got a promotion to operations manager, which left me as a department of one. And now mm -hmm. we handled um, a huge convention center here in Orlando, Florida. Uh, we also, you know, not only not only uh, dealt with the uh, shows coming into the convention center, but also all of the um, in-house folks. And I found myself 
you know, doing now a double duty on, on every job that we were, you know, cause we had split up, you know, responsibilities in the department, but now I was doing double duty. And of course there was no mention of any kind of compensation uh, given mm-hmm. for that. Mm-hmm. And it was very frustrating. And I found myself very depressed because exactly. I felt devalued. I felt devalued. Right. And, and you were. And so I actually had that moment, I think it was a couple of years ago, when I'm like, wait a minute, I just did 90 hours this week. That means that anything over 40 hours, I'm now making less money. So right. instead of looking at a six-figure salary, I'm like, okay, so I'm actually not – I'm barely hanging on to six figures at this point because right. the work I'm putting in – so if you, if you took a normal, let's say, $50,000 a $50, salary and you're putting in all this mandatory, you know, voluntary overtime – um, you're probably only making about thirty thousand if you start right. to take away all those extra hours that you work. Right. So we have people that are struggling in the workforce to keep up with what their employers expect of them, and then you have you have people who are not organized, and again, that's where the, stre- the stress, the anxiety, bosses yelling at you, sure. why isn't this done? You also have some people that are super efficient at their job. So a friend of mine, is a, a, was, she just retired from General Motors, and she was working at a, a plant here in Michigan, and um, she got upset with her boss because he didn't really understand what she was doing nor wanted to and would see her with some downtime and then complaining about why she had downtime. Well, she got so sick of it, she ended up leaving and going into another plant. It took them four people to replace her. Oh, man. Four people. That's how efficient she was at her job. But because she was devalued, because, you know, that's a manager's job, right, is to look at your job and say, are you performing it properly? So, like, for example, my philosophy is I'm a micromanager or a macromanager. If you figured out how to hit the goals I want you to hit – God bless. Mm-hmm. I don't care when you come in. I don't care when you leave. You know, and that's the Google philosophy of focusing on productivity. But if you're not, then it's my job to micromanage you to get you where that needs to be. And now right. what we have are all these people, these managers that are micromanaging people to 60, 70, 80 hours a week because they know right. they have to push them to keep working. Right. And, and that and, adds and, to the overall stress. And also, too, I mean, doesn't the fact that uh, most of these folks are on salary and they're looking at uh, the time they're spending and they're looking at their paychecks going, you know, gee, I'm Mm -hmm. making this amount of money at this amount of time. And it's very, Mm -hmm. very, 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 very frustrating. It is. It is. And disheartening. I'm sorry. Go ahead. It is. No, it is. It is absolutely. And I mean, like looking at my mom, I rarely saw my mom. She would leave at 5.30 in the morning and get home at 6.30 at night. Wow. So, so there's, but there's a lot of people that are like that or having to work two jobs to bring in an income. And that's kind of the American way. I mean, we, we, we are hard workers and that's what employers right. know. Um, right. But it, it's okay if it's occasional, I think. Sometimes there are yeah. big projects that require a little sure. extra work, but what the workforce has become to expect is that it's something that you give 365 days a year. And that's why I think it's leading to this great resignation is where people are just like, you know, it's just not worth it for me. You have the older generations that are, listen, I'm on the downward slide of life, right. and I would rather retire and go be with my right. grandkids or my family right. or travel the world. I don't need this anymore. So you see a lot of companies like Allstate, which will bring their retirees back, but they, they bring them back because they say basically, well, you can work the hours that you want to work, but you know so much about, let's say, catastrophic claims that we need your knowledge, but we just give you flexible hours. And they'll accept that because they can yeah. still make money, but on terms. But most of them just like, I'm done, I'm, I'm cooked, I can't do this anymore, and they just walk out. And that's part of that great resignation is they just can't do it anymore. And they would rather spend the rest of their lives you know, doing what they love to do. Right, and that gets us to our, your second factor, which is COVID. What, did COVID, you know, as horrible as it was, um, did COVID expose those uh, inequalities did COVID bring um, about, you know, putting that, that the, the time, the effort, and the expectations of bosses on employees into light? Yes. Um, 
in many different ways. So, for example, the Department of Justice is still trying to unpack, um, and I looked into it because I know a former boss of mine probably took some things that he shouldn't have. So what they, when I talked to the Department of Justice is that basically what they said is they knew that they needed to get money to employers quickly. So they didn't put a lot of parameters around it. And that's why you're still hearing about a lot of um, COVID money theft, the PPP program, right. where employers right. were taking this money um, and then not trickling it down to their workers, which was the intent of the program, which was right. you're going to lay off people here. We're going to give you money so that you don't lay those people off. And that you, if you have to go and pay for your utilities and whatever, then it keeps those people working, keeps the lights on. What we sure. now found is that they pocketed that money, millions. Oh, no. Um, and, oh, yeah, millions. And you're, he you're still hearing about the Department of Justice prosecuting people. In my industry, which is the workforce management industry, it's more complex, but the theft was probably greater because – Many staffing companies have payroll line of credit with most banks. So, for example, General Motors, Walmart, those companies have 120-day payment terms, So, which means that you don't have money coming in for 120 days, which is like six months. So you can mm -hmm. go get a loan, a line of credit, and then that line of credit is such that now I can pay these workers based on a line of credit knowing that I will get money from, let's say, right. Walmart in. Well, right. what has happened is a lot of this PPP loan money was slipped into the lines of credit, so you can't track it. It looks like the normal payroll that's coming in, so you can't track because normally it would be here's the money coming from the government for the PPP. It would have come in as an ACH, and it would have been dispersed to payroll. Mm -hmm. So now they hide it in these lines of credit. So it's been, especially in the staffing industry, it was harder because these people were working hard. And right. like many companies I heard, it's like, oh, we're going to have to, my, my, my former company um, and, and other companies too. Well, you know what? We need to have our workers take a 20% pay cut because if we're all going to make it through this, we need to all chip in and, and donate our money. Yeah, part, right. so, so many of them were saying, okay, I'm going to take money away from you. I'm not going to pay it back to you because no one knows that I got a PPP loan, and I'm also going to ask you to work harder. And even if I don't ask you to work harder, you're going to want to work harder because you're hearing about all these layoffs and you're wondering if right. you're next. Right. So I'm now going to work harder to try to save my job. And so what they get is now I don't have to pay my workers 20% less than what I normally would. I've just pocketed this big PPP loan, wow. and my workers are working even harder than ever before to save their jobs. God, so like all out, of that plus the – I was going to say it sounds like out-and-out out greed. Oh, without a doubt. You give them an opportunity. And not everyone was bad like that. Many many employers did use it for the right thing. But okay. there are many of them out there that did take advantage of it. And the hard part is – so you add the pressure of just what was going on in the workplace, of having to work harder, move mm -hmm. your office to home – having to balance out screaming kids, dogs, cats, whatever, trying to find that, you know, reorient yourself. But then you had the, the pressure of misinformation and all of that, that even now we're starting to unpack some of that. So, for example, I wasn't as stressed because I knew I had SARS in 2005, and right. that's the parent to COVID. To COVID. Right. So I kept telling my friends, I can't get it. Like logic alone can't get it. And right. now the depart the department is it the University of Washington along with in conjunction with the National Institute of Medicine are doing studies on old blood with SARS from and the okay. SARS hit our country in two thousand five. They're doing mm -hmm. studies and the studies show that the old blood contains proteins that block COVID. Oh, which okay. is why I sat next to people who've right. had COVID. Right. I right. can't get it because I got the mother of all the vaccinations <laughs> that you could possibly get. So you have this people now threatened by, okay, well, if you don't get vaccines, then you don't have your job. And now what's good 
vaccines, bad vaccines, misinformation. You know, you've got politics that then gets involved with it, with Trump saying right. we're going to close the borders, and Pelosi and Chinatown saying, oh, come on down, you don't need to wear a mask, and then that flips, and everybody's stressed. So then you, right. you look at this, like, this, this just pressure cooker um, that now you're already, you know, mandatory voluntary overtime sure. on steroids because of COVID with all these pressures going on. And I, I mean, for example, another one that I give, I gave my, my cousin who's an RN, I had watched on the BBC, there's a doctor who said that there's a breathing technique that they were using that helped alleviate symptoms of COVID. And it's basically you breathe in and out six times heavily, and then you cough into your shirt and you go lay down on your stomach for an hour breathing in and out. Now, why do you do that? Part of why you lay on your stomach for an hour is you are deactivating your diaphragm so that when you're breathing, the, the, the air is going into your lungs where it needs it, those oxygen. And the other thing that we were doing that was odd is that we were having all these COVID patients in the hospital, right, laying in bed, suffering, whatever. Well, yeah. your, lung, your lungs are on your back. <laughs> right. So, you, so if you're laying in bed all day, on you your would back. not get a solid right. deep breath in. Right. So all this misinformation out there and people panicking made COVID this really kind of toxic cosmic time where people mm -hmm. were already just starting to become disenfranchised, disenfranchised with the longer work hours. Right. And that, I think, came from the fact that the older generation, I'd say like the boomers, there's still a few silent generation. That's the kind of like my dad, the 80s, you know, like right, Buffett, right, a right. silent generation and still working in his 80s. Um, and then the older millennials, um, they were more prepared to handle COVID because okay. the way they were brought up was like, I was laughing the other day. I said, like, for example, like, we didn't have, we had Pong and Texas Instruments, because I'll totally date myself. I'm I remember here. Pong. <laughs> Pong, yeah, Tetris, you know, Centipede, all that kind I of stuff. I remember that, but, yes. So we, yeah, so we had the beginning of modern technology, but we spent yeah. more time playing. But right. if you remember putting a mixed tape together, you had to listen to the radio with your finger yeah. on the button, That's waiting right. for it to happen. And then if the DJ talks, and you're like, ah, oh. oh, shit, got to start all over again. Oh. So we sort of grew up waiting. So we go into COVID like a little bit more prepared with the coping skills of waiting, you know, holding back our emotions, being able to like problem solve things out. Whereas the younger generation, like the millennials and the zoomers, and that's part of what we'll get into later about the education is that they've not sure. been taught those coping skills that we have. So sure. while it was stressful for all generations, there are certain generations that coped with it a little bit better. Um, and I think that the only reason why the boomers really stressed about it was that one of the things I think that they'll unpack in the future is the fact that, and I'll say it, but it's not like it's, not like it's obvious, which is we're not a healthy nation. And now what happens is that when somebody has, for example, cholesterol, uh, high cholesterol, what do they do? They give you a medication and you think, oh, I'm cured. No, right. you're not. You just have right. medicine that masks your disease or your, your illness. Well, I think that COVID kind of got under that. Like it knows you're unhealthy and it right. attacked people who were unhealthy, which is why you heard that people were obese, that were, were sure. dying of COVID. And again, they were broadcasting yeah, these, yeah. these news stories, panicking people. And yeah. you know, when you have that kind of death or even if they're inflated numbers, it still looks bad. Like most people sure. don't realize that an average of 100,000 people die every year from the normal flu. Right. And with right. COVID, it was only, I think, 150,000, maybe 180,000 that died. Right. Now, death is bad, but it wasn't in those big numbers that they were putting out. Or I've heard of people that, especially here in Michigan, because we were on full lockdown. Um, sure, we were. People, I, I know, okay, um, we, I know of somebody, several people actually, that were in car accidents that could not get into the hospital because they didn't have COVID. COVID right. So they were not allowed treatment. So they gave right. them COVID on paper so that they could admit and treat them. So we'll find out years from now, not only were there other solutions, but there were also inflated numbers um, because people were moving. And I don't necessarily blame people because it was a tr turbulent time. 
that it people was. were just trying to grapple. But I think in terms of, like, the great resignation, you're at your home. People are, you know, you heard of the, the Salvation Army actually stopped their donations after for a while because people were cleaning out their houses and right. donating so much, right, redoing right, right. their backyards. Right. That's why there was a rush on like landscaping companies, um, and you know here you know you could go to Ace Hardware, but you couldn't go to Walmart to buy landscaping. Um, but people were at home, and it's like now I think what happened and set in with COVID is like wait a minute, if you're going to ask me to work all these crazy hours, then I'm going to work from home. At least right. be in the comfort of my own home with my family, my dogs, and right. and then I'll work these crazy hours, and maybe not so crazy hours. Um, but because I want my quality of life, but that's the, sh- the pivot I think you, s- you saw with COVID and the resignation is people just saying, wait a minute, no, no. Right, there was a it's realization. Just, I, need, I need time out. There was a realization yeah. at that point. Exactly. Now, you yeah. also talk about another factor, which was the educational failures. Mm-hmm. What, what, what um, do we mean by, yeah. by that, by educational failures? Um. Meaning, for example, school was always designed to be a feeder pool for what I call supply chain corporations, meaning that anybody that's making a product or a service that we consume. And so, like, books that we read, printers that we buy, fans that we might buy, heaters, anything that you would buy as a consumer, that's part of the supply chain. And what has happened is that business, I guess, I want to say, fell asleep at the switch and didn't okay. realize that there were, being, there were changes that were happening in the younger generation. And schools, in a way, have become now for-profit corporations because they're no longer listening to corporate about what they want. I mean, they still listen to them a little bit. Like, we want STEM workers. Okay, we'll give you STEM workers. But what they did is they took out home economics and shop class, and now you have people that don't have practical learning skills. They've learned in theory, science, technology, engineering, and math. Um, mm-hmm. But what happened is, is that you now see the rise in colleges of entrepreneurial programs. Well, what is an entrepreneurial program? And trust me, I'm teaching at a college right now that has an an entrepreneurial program, and it's designed to teach students to open and run their own businesses. So if you have these large schools across the nation teaching the younger generation how to be entrepreneurs, how are they going to come out and work for a company? Right. They don't want to work for a company. Right. What they've done is they've heard their parents. Exactly. What they've done is they've heard their parents say, God, I hate going to work. My boss is the pastor. <laughs> I don't want to work yeah. there anymore. And what do you think they did? They're like, okay, I'm not going to work in the corporate world. <laughs> I'm right. going to run my own right. company, um, and I'll be a 1099 contractor. And then that's got its own problems because they don't really understand how to minimize their their financial exposure. Um, and they also don't know what working for these large corporations means. It means a hefty insurance policy um, to be able to work for them. Um, sure. So there's, there's these, these failures that happened in the education system so that now you have people that don't even – so that's really also where that great resignation came in. When they say, I want to be an entrepreneur, they're resigning from going in, in and working company. in the corporate supply chain. Right, right. They're not working for companies. They're trying to work for themselves. Exactly. And it was funny, yeah. I was at a, a speaking event, and somebody, I had this young kid that was taking my pictures, and I didn't come prepared to have, they said they were going to have someone take pictures, and so we, I got this guy to, to video me, and I said, oh, no, he's, he's going to work on his own, he doesn't want to work in the corporate world. And the, the lady was standing next to me, she looked at me, and she goes, is that true? And he went, yeah. Now, mind you, I didn't know this kid. Did not know him, but I know he didn't want to work in corporate. And I had, she's like, you were right. I'm like, because they don't, they don't want to work in corporate. So that's also part of this great resignation is that they want to own their own companies. And that also, um, you know, creates a problem for corporate. You know, they'll go, they don't understand that you almost have to work in corporate as, as sort of um, an apprenticeship, 
You know, if you think yes. about apprenticeships in the past, if I wanted to be right. the blacksmith, you would work with the blacksmith for your entire life, learning all their skills, all their nuances, and then they would die and you'd become the blacksmith. Right. Um, they don't. They, they don't want to work in corporate. So they're, in a way, doomed to make those mistakes and learn um, because they learned it in theory. No one could possibly prepare them for what entrepreneurship is. Um, you know, so it's, it's a bit of a challenge for them. Now, you also talk about, speaking of education, you talk about entitlement, and mm-hmm. uh, you, you talk about parents being over-engaged uh, with the school. Mm-hmm. To be, Do you want to explain more about that? I mean, what we're talking about with entitlement and... Sure. Um, I, I guess the best example I could give you was I was, when I was teaching... I had a gentleman approach me about wanting to write a book about millennials, and he was asking me for my feedback. So I'm not just a marketer. When I'm teaching, they're my little focus groups. (laughs) Right, 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 right. Um, right. So, but a lot of surprise that a lot of my my colleagues don't look at it that way. They go and they teach the class, and I'm just interested enough to to watch what they do. So I was. He took me to to lunch to to discuss like what his intention was. I'm not just going to let anybody into my classroom, and I had to find out what you know. So it was was more of an investigation about what he wanted. And we were talking, and he said something like, and I said, "Well, I don't have children." I said, "My my brother used to always say, oh, Amy, you can never understand the the role of a parent because you're not a parent.'" I'm like, "No, I watch, and because I'm not a parent, I can see that you are blinded by love." You are not seeing the realities of what you're doing with your children. And yeah. it gave me this different perspective. So when I was talking to him, he's like, oh, yeah, my son's coming, you know, home um, from high school and, you know, whatever, whatever. And I was making him a sandwich. And I was like, oh, excuse me, wait, you were making him a sandwich? And he's like, yeah, <laughs> I was making him a sandwich. I said, well, my mom and dad would say, Amy, your hands aren't go broken. You can go yeah, make go your make own sandwich. sandwich. <laughs> yep. And he looked at me Sounds dumbfounded. Like he well. was like, exactly. And he yeah. looked at me dumbfounded. He goes, I am doing it, aren't I? I said, yeah, you are. <laughs> um, exactly. So all those, all those little things that parents do for their children, in a way out of love, or when they make the sure. claim of, I'm going to raise my children, they never have the experience that I have. Um, right. I was writing, I'm writing a book about my mom, um, oh, okay. about her experience, yeah, about her experiences, because there's a lot of sexism that she went through, well, um, and, it, but I also, what I learned about it. And I've seen that picture, it, it's, uh, unfortunately we don't have it up right now, but I've seen that picture of your mom there sitting at the table mm-hmm. uh, with all mm-hmm. Being the only female there, and I can yeah. imagine the pressure that she felt and was under at that point, especially she did. at that time. She know, did. It was and I did a lecture. Difficult. Oh, it was. I mean, I did a lecture in uh, at a women's group, and um, I was a guest speaking keynote speaker at a women's conference in Chicago. And I, my mom was going through Alzheimer's, so it was right. so emotional for me. And I'm in a PhD program because I'm completely stupid so and now I've learned I know nothing um but um I was grappling with her being in the final stages so I I've learned in my PhD program to write scripts because that's what they do in that world and it's different than the business world so I wrote a script because there's no way I could have I could have said what I had to say without crying but what it is is like so my book is like the first book half of it is really about my mom like all the experiences that she went through but then also the the second half is like the lessons I learned from her so for example the one thing I shared in the book was um that um in that picture you saw my mom was wearing a skirt Right. And that picture was taken while she was still a secretary. And so she was working for the plant manager who managed several plants. And she had asked him if she could, after she finished her work, if she could go measure uh, with the engineers. And I found out why my mom did that, which was an interesting part of the book that I didn't expect. But um, what I found out is that, so for example, she had petitioned HR if she could wear pants because now she's on the floor walking this sure. massive. Um, sure. I, I know people, well, people yeah. understand that in Flint, Michigan, the Buick facility was a five-mile square radius yeah. Um, yeah. complex. Sure. Um, but So she asked HR if she could wear pants, and they said no. 
And so the only reason why they changed their mind is they found out that men were standing underneath the industrial stairs, you know, that they're oh, open stairs looking boy. up for curb. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my <laughs> now, word. With, with that said, um, the, her boss was not going to give her an engineering title, and it was those same men that really stood up to him and made him give it to her. Really? Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. So she taught me things like that, like how to be able to work with men and, and not be so offended by certain things and be focused on my job. And, but she has a lot of great stories like that. Or like I think one was my dad told me was that she would walk up and down the uh, uh, industrial line. And my mom was an incredibly beautiful woman. They would throw sure. nuts and bolts at her to try to get her attention. <laughs> <laughs> So your so mom's I walking out of the plane going, I just got pummeled. I got pummeled by nuts and bolts. <laughs> exactly with bruises on her. I'm trying, I'm trying to walk oh, the plant and I'm getting bruised. I'm getting bruised exactly. up because of the nuts and bolts that are flying out at me. Oh, that is funny. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, so a wonderful when I story. say you. Yeah, I, I mean, I learned these all as I was writing an article about her, and then I've decided to branch it out into the story of sure. this mother-daughter sure. relationship that was very complex but very loving in a way. But sure. when I say entitlement, my mother never gave me anything. I had to right. work for everything. So well, that was, when I got yeah. grounded, when I got grounded, I would put my toes right at the end of my purple carpet, and I, <laughs> I knew if I could get her talking to me that I could get out of my room, but I would go right up to the carpet because I wouldn't go over because I was grounded in my room. Um, But what I learned from that is that That's actually very brilliant. (laughs) (laughs) My my purple carpet. That is very brilliant. No, that is. (laughs) What she was doing is that I was building really strong business cases to try to get out of my room. Right. And I right, carried exactly. that forward into my, my career. So those are the kind of stories that I was writing. But when I say oh, entitlement, wonderful. thank you. Um, when I was talking about entitlement is that a lot of people would have said, like in my case, well, I'm never going to raise my children like that. Well, every, right. any time you decide to raise your children any different than how you were raised, you will not ever know. They'll ne- you'll never be able to relate to them. Because they don't, they have a completely set, a different set of experiences than you, you have. And I'm talking about on a small level. So the definition of chaos, and I don't even call it the chaos theory. I call it the chaos principle now because we all see we have chaos. And the Egyptians, for example, were terrified of, they actually have a god of chaos. That's how much they were fearful of chaos. So chaos, the definition is small, minute changes on a complex system. So what are children? but complex systems. Complex and that systems, small, yeah. minute just, yeah, that one small, minute change is tiny. All it has to be is I'm not going to discipline my child or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step in and, and call the school because my child got bullied. When we went to school, it was, okay, here's how you handle it. So your parents right. were teaching you the coping skills for right. how to be able to manage situations. Right now, when I say entitled, is parents are stepping in and doing things for doing their children. It. They do their homework right. for them now. They I go know. to school and beg them. I literally have had a 22-year-old that worked for me whose dad came into my store because I had a vintage resale shop, um, designer, okay. high-end designer. But her dad came into the store to chastise me for something. I'm like, excuse me, get out of my I'm store. Like, Your daughter is 22 years old. And if she's got something to say, but that's what I mean when I say entitled. So you now have this younger group of of, of, of generation that doesn't have the same coping skills. So when they're under pressure at work, um, and I guess the best way to give you an example is I called U of M, like after the Hillary Trump um, um, camp, you know, um, presidential Mm -hmm. campaign. Mm -hmm. And... I don't want, I mean, I'm not here to talk about politics, but what the University of Michigan did was to establish safe rooms, and they had Play-Doh that they used to help keep them 
less from being stressed and help cope with their anxiety and whatever. Right. And I emailed the president and the Board of Regents and I said, congratulations, as an alumni, I will never hire another U of M grad again because you've oh. now just created HR nightmares. I said, so oh. when, I, when they have their first performance review and it goes negatively, what am I supposed to have, Play-Doh, Play-Doh in a safe room? <laughs> Here's your can. Go enjoy. <laughs> exactly. Like, let's do a kumbaya moment before we actually give you your performance review. Um, so when I say entitled, they're not taught yeah. the coping skills, and then they go into the uh, corporate world in some cases, and they can't yeah. handle the pressure. The same pressure that the older generations have become accustomed to. They don't like right. it, but they've right. learned to handle it. This younger generation, I literally had an employee OD on an anti-anxiety medication because we were putting out RFPs, and he just couldn't handle it. I mean, it was hard for me. Sure. So that's sure. what I mean and, about entitlement. And, and you know what? You, you really and – and I want to thank you on a personal note because um, I have a daughter, and she is 23, and you know we – we made her, or we shouldn't say make, we had her face her troubles herself to try to figure them out herself. Mm-hmm. We purposely, and, and I get that. My, my mom and dad were, uh, were um, depression kids, so they were of mm-hmm. that generation. And that's the way I was brought up was that, well, here's the problem. You need to deal with it, you know, mm-hmm. and don't expect me to be able to step in because we won't always be there. You know, exactly. and uh, and it really, I can see the transformation in her and how she's doing, and she's doing quite well. Um, mm-hmm. But um, I, I really feel, you know, wow, that's a really a, a positive reinforcement of parenting skills because you're really not doing them any favors. You none, know? none, and, none. And, any and, parent that goes in and tries to coddle their children. Right. Um, I did some research at a preschool. Um, that I'm going to be writing about. And I had one parent that brought a 16-month-old and asked me to cube up his blueberries. And I was thinking, are you kidding? He's not me? even developmentally up with his peers. Oh my god. So did I so what I did as soon as she left, I gave him blueberries and I gave him animal crackers. <laughs> and he ate them without choking. Amazing. <laughs> Isn't that amazing how so, that works? It is, and so I had to say, oh well, you know, the, the, his, you know, his, co- his, co- and a co- and classmates were the ones who taught him how to eat, you know, and so I didn't out myself of just giving it to him. But so you have those parents that are like, and and the one, I, the one thing I can't stand, and I know this is going to sound horrible, kiddos, don't oh, call kiddos. them kiddos. kiddos. You are raising people who are adults, and kiddos are a certain point, like elementary school, maybe. But when you get to about right. sixth grade, you are now a mini adult that you're being trained yes. for the workforce. Yes. And, and I saw an interview with somebody from Germany who says that I don't understand how Americans raise their kids. They're keeping them to be children far longer. Yeah. And so yeah. when, what do you expect? You're training them at the most critical time to be children. You're not training them to be adults. And so when we see the entitlement is they don't know how to work hard. And that's why I don't blame them. And I've never blamed. In fact, I've had millennials and Zoomers come up to me, the Gen Z, come up to me after speaking engagement and say, thank you. Most people come in here and just bash my generation. I'm like, no, it's not your fault. But we have to get you up to speed as quickly as we can. Otherwise, we all fail. Right. Really, exactly, exactly what you're saying. We all fail. Right. So when I say the entitlement is part of that great resignation, when they get – and trust me, they've been taught by education to do a great resume, to present themselves very well, to ask for the manager role. But when they get into that role, that's why you see the job flipping because the minute they have to perform, they can't. They don't have the experience. They don't have the knowledge. So what do they do? They leave, and then they go find another better job, and then the pressure builds up. Then they leave. And I know millennials, some of them, that have 40 jobs on their resume. I I work with a person right now who uh, has had 30 jobs. Wow. 30 jobs. And and this is what I don't understand because it – it used to be the thought was the first year, understand your job. The second year, you're perfecting your job. The third year, you're positioning yourself for your next job. And it's either your company sees your value right. and they promote you right. or you leave. Right. Right. But now you know, it's uh, – I had a student hmm? – No, go ahead, Professor Kelly. I'm sorry to interrupt. 
So I just I was going to say I had a student one time that told me that she I, I went to go ask her I'm like so how'd you like your new job and this was like eight months later after she took my class she was oh no I left that job. Her mother is the vice president of HR at a large utility. Like are you not telling your and she walked into my class with a Louis Vuitton handbag, like a five thousand know, dollar Louis Vuitton handbag. Unbelievable. You know, I I um I was in a this is about three years ago. I was interviewing for a job, and um, I was actually asked by the HR person, "Wow, you were at this job for eighteen years. Why?" And I and I and I and I you know I'm, maybe it's you know because of the way I was raised, but I was thinking to myself, well, isn't that a good thing i mean that means yeah. i was doing my job that means that i was performing all the duties i was supposed to do i was getting there on time i wasn't calling in sick all the time i was doing my job and it, it just the, the the question just kind of floored me you Should, know I, I just because, because they're so I used guess, to seeing yeah so, I guess they're so used absolutely. to seeing jobs. Uh, we're, we're running out. Well, we could talk for. We're running out of time. I wanted to really touch base with you on the next, the last two factors, which was mm-hmm. a disruptive social media. Yes. What were you talking about with so, that? Kind of going back to that younger generation. What people don't like, um, Mr. Beast. I don't know. He's the largest YouTuber in the world. It's fifty-six right. million a year, and he's twenty-five years old. Wow. So the answer is that socialize, I mean, social media that has now become monetized or Etsy or eBay, a lot right. of them are saying, I don't want to work in corporate. I'll just go vintage shop. And that's why now you can hard press to find vintage in, in like Goodwill and whatnot because they're flipping them online faster than ever. Oh, I know. Um, I know. So, so social media, and they're not really even considering that when they're looking at the workforce. So like the Bureau of Labor Statistics was predicting in 2022 um, that there would be a workforce reduction because the older generation is starting to retire. Um, yeah. What happened in, in, in um, 2022 is actually this, where we are in what they call the Great Recession. Well, part of it is because the older millennials are leaving, and but they haven't factored in the fact that many millennials and Zoomers again, are using social media to monetize it. So I know I did this math. There's a couple of websites out there that if you say I want to make $200,000 a year, they'll tell you exactly how many views and subscribers per social media channel that you would have to get to earn 20000 or 200000 per social media channel, which totals to $600,000. So you've got this younger generation that have figured out I can just go, you know, go travel and just vlog myself and get interest and do a TEDx talk and then parlay that with 100,000, you know, Instagram subscribers into a really nice career. Sure. And so they don't have to work in corporate at that point. Wow. And and nobody's really looking at that. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, I'll tell you what, you're seeing a lot of it, though. Seeing a lot of it, and I guess that's where we get the uh, the term um, uh, influencer. Correct. Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Our, your last factor is we're running out of time, and I apologize, Professor Keeley. Um, we have governmental okay. workforce tampering. Yep. So, so, if you think back to NAFTA around that time frame, the decision was made of poor general labor workers. We're gonna we're gonna up upscale you and teach you how to work in the IT industry so that you can make more money. And we're going to shift all those low-paying jobs over to China and places like that so that you right. don't have to work on those nasty jobs. Well, now, right now, the, on the globe, the, the, the country with the highest growing and fastest growing middle class is China. China. Because all because what we forgot about is what made America and what made our middle class was our manufacturing plants, right. the general labor, the blue collar worker. So now all those jobs are shipped overseas. So now they've taken and they've moved people into nursing. They've moved them in particularly IT. What just happened? Right. 
they, the government could never see because they don't understand business. None of, them, none of the lawyers or political science majors that are working in our government have ever worked in business. What they no. could never know was that technology was heading towards AI, which means all of those workers with chat, you know, um, chat APT and new things like that, it's replacing their jobs. It is. So now all those people that you trained for those higher jobs have no jobs because the technology right. has replaced them. That's so that's saying. what I meant about the yeah. workforce tampering. They got in thought they were doing something good without really understanding the ramifications of what they've done, and now they've put us in a pickle. So. Well, Professor, Professor Keeley, we could talk longer, and I apologize, um, but we are running no, out of okay. time. I, I, I want to definitely uh, – if you could please let us know where people could reach you or learn more about you. Um, sure. So I have two websites. Two websites. One is educational education success strategies. It's my basically my YouTube channel and my website. Uh, the website is um, edusuccesses.com, and then okay. also professorkeely.com is another place that you can go and find more information about me. That is fantastic. And I would like to ask a request before we leave. Um, when you do publish the book on your mom, would you mind coming back on the show and talking? Because I would love to hear more stories about your mom and the influence Absolutely. she had on your life and just all of her experiences being in the situation she was in. Um, I know that must have Absolutely. been a lot of pressure and it must have been a lot of um, stress on her. But it's it's amazing, you know, just the story about the nuts and bolts. I mean, that that is just a... Uh, <laughs> An incredible story, and it's very interesting to me, and we love talking to authors, and I would hope that you would join, come back and join us again um, I would love and to. when you get that book. And I really, really, really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. It's been an education, and I uh, wish you nothing but the best, and I hope to talk to you soon. Absolutely. Well, thank you, Tony. I appreciate all your time and, and you know, just the great questions, so thank you. All right. Thank you, Professor Keeley. Have a great night. That's about it for us, folks. This is another episode of Be Unique's Unscripted. We were with Professor Keeley. And uh, join us again next Thursday at 9 o'clock Eastern Standard Time for another exciting episode. Thanks again, Professor Keeley. Have a wonderful evening. Thank you. You too. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.